Very good to be with you today. So I'm Steve. Um, I wonder if you could also give a really big welcome to Rob Golding as he comes up here. This is a celebration of baldness. That's more than I got. Yeah, no surprise. You, you don't have any idea what's about to happen to you, do you? I'm not, not sure I do, actually, to be quite honest with you. Other than you mentioned it on Thursday night. Yeah, well, there is that, yeah. Okay, Rob, what I'd like you to do is just uh, get inside here, if you could. Yeah. No, you'd be fine. No, you'd be fine. I'd play bass. You played what? Okay, that bald, beautiful bald head. Okay, so um, how's your back? Doing all right so far? Okay, so in 1350 in this country... Um, Every town, and a law was passed, okay, that every town and village in England had to have a set of these. Uh, they were everywhere. And uh, it's, an, it's a law that's actually uh, never been abolished. So uh, here's the Winchester set uh, today and have a, a vile criminal in here today. So essentially what happened is that uh, these things were built sometimes out of stone, but normally out of wood. And uh, always on the outside of the village or the town. And, uh, and it's where the expression, the walk of shame, comes from. And it was the walk that was taken by a convicted criminal from the courthouse uh, to the stocks. Now, sometimes they were like uh, headstocks like this. This is actually called a pillory. It's where we get the expression uh, to be pillory, to pillory somebody or to uh, heap shame upon them. That's where the expression comes from. Sometimes these stocks were ankle stocks or just wrist stocks. And that's where we get the expression laughing stock. Uh, because it wasn't so much a punishment. Uh, it was more to humiliate and to degrade. Now, I brought some wet sponges and a bucket uh, today and some eggs. But we won't do that. It's too messy. It's good, good fun outdoors. Uh, so you've probably seen these things. Now, uh, this is a dictionary definition of, um, of a headstock, okay, or a, a set of stocks. Okay. A solid frame, normally wooden, into which a vile offender is secured by the ankles, neck, wrists, head, or a combination thereof, and exposed to public abuse, <laughs> ridicule, and scorn. Now, what would normally happen is that somebody would be fastened in a set of stocks, and uh, they would just be literally fed with bread and water, uh, sometimes for weeks at a time, and would be there basically because they've committed a crime, normally theft, oh, gosh, normally theft or, or something like that, minor crimes, and uh, they would be uh, uh, fed, literally kept alive with bread and water, unless, you know, some kind of charitable soul uh, rocked up with something a little more substantial. I guess today, you know, Deliveroo would come with some KFC or something like that, although vomiting in a set of these is a bit grim, I would think, something like that. So uh, let's let the lovely Rob out of here. A little round of applause for Rob. In fact, I didn't lock it, so you could have got out at any time, to be quite honest with you. Okay, so the walk of shame, that's what I want to talk to you 
about today. Just to say as well, as already been mentioned, um, I run the Alpha course, I do a few other things as well, um, but we run an Alpha course three times a year here at Hope Church. Uh, This is the leaflet that you need, there's a little sign up section to it as well if you're here for the first time or if you've got friends um, who you think would really benefit from this. Uh, it's a lot of fun, um, about seven weeks, uh, not full time. Uh, every Tuesday night in June and July, we're going to be running the Alpha course. And over there, just behind you, you'll see um, a larger version of this sign with a banner that says the Alpha course. And uh, Ray's over there, a uh, few of the Alpha team. That's Ray. Give us a wave. A uh, few of the Alpha team will be over there at the end if you'd like to find out more. Alpha is a great opportunity uh, to explore in a really informal environment what it means to be a Christian. So that's what it's all about, and we would love to see you um, over those Tuesday evenings in June and July. Okay, so the walk of shame. Uh, Obviously, this is what it referred to initially. This is where it came from. Uh, But the walk of shame as an expression um, means something a little bit different in our time. This is what the walk of shame now means, okay? The walk of shame was made famous by Gareth Southgate, who skied a penalty uh, in the World Cup in a penalty shootout and uh, England got um, uh, eliminated in the final against Germany, again, okay? So uh, that is what the walk of shame is all about. It's that humiliating sort of trudge back to the centre circle, having skied the ball live on television. Gareth Southgate's mother was asked by the BBC, because she was in the stadium at the time, she said, and they said to her, what were the first words that you spoke to your son after the match? You know, and obviously his mother, he was in his 20s at the time, I'm sure she felt very compassionate towards him, you know, he was the, the, the sort of spectacle of, you know, abuse from the nation, and uh, apparently Southgate's mother said to him, the first words that she said to him after the match is, why didn't you hit the target, you stupid idiot? (laughs) That's what she said. Now, I've I've actually done a walk of shame myself. Um, My walk of shame involved uh, Flybe at Southampton Airport. Um, I was actually flying to Dublin. Uh, I I was involved in a church over there, and... uh, I'd left some, uh, l- some leaflets about what I do. I'd left them in my car. Now, lots of you are familiar with Southampton Airport, I'm sure. Um, the car park's quite close to the terminal. So I went into the terminal, and I, just, I knew I was a little bit tight on time, but I'd left some stuff in the car. So I thought, I'm just going to just knit back to the car and uh, get the leaflets that I've forgotten. And I sort of went in, and then I, I kind of had to queue up to get through you know, the uh, passport control, and, you know, they sort of, you know, put all your stuff in little plastic bags. Never quite understand what that's for. And, uh, but I knew I was running late at this time. I was a little bit worried. So I got through into the kind of departure area. And then the intercom cuts in and says, um, could passenger Lee please make your way immediately through the, uh, the kind of exit gate uh, the aeroplane is waiting to take off at the time. So I just think, I mean, I've been on an aeroplane, you know, when, you know, some sort of drunken lout comes in with his mate, you know, who's holding everyone else. But now it's kind of me and I'm, 
I'm walking onto a packed aeroplane, and I went into the front entrance, and I was sitting right at the back. It was truly horrific. And, uh, you know, it was a walk of shame, you know. And I, I just felt like I had to apologize to every person. It was just so incredibly awkward. So I guess we've all been there, you know. We've all had moments where we've, you know, had to be... You know, we'd had to face public ridicule for doing something that maybe we shouldn't have done or maybe something that could have been done a, lot of, a, a little bit better. So one of the first um, references, one of the earliest references to the use of stocks um, is actually in the Bible. And uh, it's when a guy called Paul and uh, his co-worker Silas are arrested and thrown into prison. These two guys had been transformed by an encounter with the risen Jesus. So Jesus has lived, uh, he's died, he's risen from the dead. And now the power that was, that was within Jesus is now being poured out into the streets. And the people that were followers of Jesus have become the leaders of what is now the church. So when uh, we do something like Thy Kingdom Come and all the things that Andrew was talking about, that weekend is Pentecost. It's like the birthday of the church. It's the moment when the power that was within within Jesus suddenly entered his followers. And Paul and Silas, if you like, they're the second generation. They're around at the same time, but Paul particularly um, was a vicious opponent to everything that Jesus stood for. People were terrified of Paul, who were Christians, because he used to beat them up. He was somebody who abused Christians, but then he has this stunning encounter where he realizes the blindness in his life, and he comes to that point of saying sorry to God, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. Not just a follower of Jesus, but a prolific evangelist and church planter. So this is the guy in the story, Paul and, uh, and his mate Silas, who was working with him at the time. They have both become fearless preachers of the gospel of Jesus because of what has happened to them in their own lives. The opposition to their message is fierce, but their success in reaching ordinary people with this life-changing message is astounding. Uh, thousands of people are leaving everything in order to follow Jesus, and it is still happening today. I think it's always a great mystery how the most angry people, when it comes to Christianity or Jesus, church, the Bible, that sort of stuff, it seems that some of the angriest people are militant atheists who insist that we should believe nothing. Now, they're not just happy for themselves to believe nothing. They insist that we should all believe nothing. And yet people talk about Christians. People often say, don't they? Well, I don't mind you being a Christian, but don't sort of ram a Bible down my throat. And yet, ironically, we live in a world today where some people are trying to ram atheism down our throats, are trying to insist that we really must believe in nothing. Very, very interesting. And of course, there were people around uh, in Jesus' time, in the time of the early church, who were very angry that people were talking about God's love in a way that it was accessible to ordinary people, to the broken, to the destitute, to people who had messed up, to people who had walked the walk of shame. They were the people that were being reached by the early Christian leaders. So 
let's look at this amazing story where uh, stocks are mentioned in the Bible as a way of punishing uh, Christian leaders. Uh, it's the amazing story in the book of Acts and chapter 16, uh, where these two guys, Paul and Silas, they've taken a beating uh, for uh, daring to communicate that God's love is available to everybody. And uh, this is what happened. Words will appear up on the screen there if you want to follow it with me. Here's the amazing story in Acts 16. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. It's what we've been doing today. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake. Such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for the lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And guess what? That's exactly what they did. And Millions have done exactly the same ever since. Ever since. Prison doors are still swinging open when God is worshipped and at times at the very mention of the name of Jesus. Prison doors are opening. Prisons of shame and rejection, of poverty, of abuse, of sickness and most profoundly of all, the prison of hopelessness that comes when we are told that we must believe in nothing, that God doesn't exist. But I want to tell you today that God is not dead, God is alive. And prisons are still opening today, just as they did 2,000 years ago on the streets of ancient Palestine, when the mention of the name of Jesus, when people gathered to worship the name of this man, Jesus, and celebrating because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is being let loose into the lives of ordinary, broken people. Prison doors are opening. You know, Jesus actually announced his intention at the, the almost like the inauguration speech of his three-year public ministry. Jesus announced his intention by saying this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has proclaimed, because, because he has enabled me to proclaim, empowered me, anointed me to proclaim what? Freedom. For who? The prisoners. Freedom for captives, freedom for prisoners. Many people were 
shamed in Jesus' time. It was not uncommon. Not really because they had committed a crime, but mainly because they failed to match up to a crushing religious, religious system. That's why they were shamed. Or because they were ill, or because for some reason they were misfits. They didn't quite stack up alongside what people considered to be the norm, and therefore the acceptable norm. And so they were shamed and rejected. Not dissimilar to a society like ours, where people feel that they are outcasts. People feel that they belong on the scrap heap because of some issue in their life, because of something in their past, because of something which they feel disqualifies them from being treated in a way that is honourable. If you are here today and you feel that you are in any way in one of those categories, you are welcome here. Why? Because God forgives everybody. And he has made a way where there was previously no way. Through the life, death, resurrection, and the ascension back to heaven of Jesus Christ, his son. There is hope in this place because of that. So what was Jesus' response to people who were made to take the walk of shame for all of those reasons? Well, Jesus' response was two things. The first thing that he did is that he aggressively pursued the perpetrators. Some of the harshest words that you will find recorded, which are attributed attributed to Jesus, easy for me to say, were actually angled at the very people who propped up and propagated that religious system. So far from lining up alongside the religious authorities of the time, Jesus had his harshest words reserved for those people. And yet people insist on telling us today that Jesus was a pious religious character. Don't let anybody tell you that's what Jesus was and is like. Quite the opposite. So he went after those people. He went after the hypocrites. He went after the people who controlled the religious system. That's the first thing he did. But the second thing he did is that he lined up and befriended and connected with the outcasts, the destitute, and the social rejects of the time. That was his mission. That was, that's what he was about. That's why he stood up in the temple at the beginning of his ministry and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and the recovery of sight to the blind and the release of prisoners and captives. Desperate people often give the church and God and Jesus and Christianity and the Bible a wide berth fearing a bad reception. It's not true. That is not how God views us. He doesn't always like what we get up to. He doesn't sometimes like the attitudes that we harbor in our hearts. But he loves us. He loves us to death. 
And so there's hope. There's freedom for the captives. Whatever captivity looks like and feels like to you today, there is freedom. You can be set free. Why is it that people feel that God basically likes religious people more than other people? I wonder why that is. I wonder what message has come out of the established religious brands of Christianity for 2,000 years that has made people feel like that. You will not find that in the life of Jesus. You don't find that emphasis. What you do find is Jesus almost hunting out the most broken people imaginable. Not because he only cares about people that have got major issues in their lives. He loves everybody. But there does seem to be some sort of bias within the majority of Jesus' time and activity and focus seems to be with broken people. I wonder why that is. We know that not everything Jesus got up to is recorded in the Bible. In one of the four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these four kind of biographies written by different people to a different type of audience but recording the same events with an amazing harmony between all four of them. At the end of one of them it says, all the books in the world would not contain the sum total of what Jesus did. So there was a load of other things that he did that we don't get to hear about. But the things that we do get to hear about, it does seem that he's with the broken and he's with the people who, for whatever reason, have either taken the walk of shame or feel like they probably should. But ironically, many of the people in the Bible had major personal problems at some point in their life, crises. Here's a few examples. There's a story that Jesus met a man who was a con artist called Zacchaeus. The Bible calls him a tax collector. He was more of a tax creator. He was a rip-off merchant of mammoth proportions. But he's there. He's there as a superstar in the Bible. A beggar on the streets just outside the city of Jericho called Bartimaeus. A woman who'd bled for 12 years and felt socially rejected as a result of that. Jesus got involved at close quarters with all three of those people. Targeted them, singled them out for humiliation, no, for relationship, for connection, to fortify and build up their self-esteem and self-image by bringing the kingdom of heaven into their lives. The list goes on. A leper rejected for having a terminal illness. This is the kind of society that Jesus came into. It was carved up. And on one side there were the haves, on the other side there were the have-nots. And it was just the way it was. And it is shocking that it was a religious system that created that, system, that, that, that environment, that culture, that type of society. And Jesus went after it in order to elevate and rescue the victims of it. A disciple called Peter who betrayed Jesus in the most horrific way imaginable. 
after three years, three years of seeing the sick healed and the dead raised and the power of God poured out through the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says to him, in front of everybody else at this kind of meal, this celebratory meal, celebration of the three years, but in many ways a goodbye meal, because Jesus was about to go to the cross. And Jesus drops the bombshell in the middle of this meal and says, one of you will will betray me. And they're like horrified. And Peter stands up and he's got all the chat. And he says, it might be one of these you know, losers, but it won't be me. Terrible, terrible things that happened to him after that. And yet the stories that we read in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, so many of them center around this guy Peter. Why? Because he recovered. He got over it. He got over himself. And more importantly, Jesus made a way for him to come back. But what a loser. What a bad choice of the lead disciple Jesus made, it would seem. Jesus singles out this guy Peter and says, you're the one that this whole thing is going to be built around. Remarkable. Paul, we talked about him already today, the Apostle Paul. This spectacular starter, founder of churches who preached this message of the kingdom in some of the most hostile, dangerous places known in the world at that time. The hot spots. I've been to some pretty crazy places in what I've done, but nothing compared to what Peter went through. Beaten up in the street, dragged, thrown into prison, flogged. Why? For telling people that God loved them. And yet, this man, Paul, had a violent past. He wasn't your normal kind of person that, you know, level-headed, together, decent background, emotionally stable. Not really. I'm sure he became those things, but that was not his background. He'd taken the walk of shame for what he'd done. And... A passing, I mean, that's the New Testament, okay? That's the second half of the Bible that talks about the time of Jesus' life and the years after it. But what about the Old Testament? What about this kind of big, thick version of, you know, the Bible? You know, most of it, really, in terms of width, is the Old Testament. What about that? Well, in there, you'll find Moses, the murderer. You'll find Samson, the thug. Joseph, the refugee. And King David was a manipulator, among a number of other things as well. And these are some of the people that are held up as the megastars, the celebrity God followers of the Old Testament. And yet they had incredibly compromised backgrounds. So why do I tell you this? Why? Because there is hope for you. There's hope for me. There's hope for us. If we may feel that this is where we belong, and the reason why I brought this here today is not just to have a bit of fun at Rob's expense, but because it's an amazing visual aid of how people feel inside. I think this is where I belong. In the stocks, somewhere towards the edge of town, away from everybody else. Pushed out, rejected, outcast. 
In Jesus' time, anyone who had leprosy, which was the feared terminal disease of the time, why fear? Because it was highly contagious. People were put in, in colonies. They were taken out of mainstream society and put together somewhere else. But you see, leprosy is not a prevalent condition, at least in the Western world. So we can hear that and we can go, oh, that's horrific. But we carve society up like that. We think there are people who belong and people who don't. All of the people that I've talked about, New Testament and Old Testament, they were all fit for the walk of shame. But instead they found divine purpose in their lives. Because of God and because of his love for us. So what about Jesus? Was he immune to the walk of shame? Not a bit of it. I mean, in fact, the walk of shame that Jesus took is the most important one of all. After three years of of miracles, teaching, and acts of kindness among the community, Jesus climbed a hill with a Roman cross on his back that he would soon be fastened to. It was a hill called uh, Golgotha, or Skull Hill, that's what it means. And it was an execution site on the site of a former rubbish tip. Not exactly a glorious ending to a three-year speaking tour, really. Not the place where you would find Jesus. Death by crucifixion was sport to the Romans. It was not pleasant. It was the most horrific, barbaric form of executing uh, executing a common criminal that was available at that time. It was described as the height of suffering and the depth of shame. That's the type of death that Jesus went through. The walk of shame that belonged to us was taken by Jesus as he became the scapegoat for all of us, every one of us, every one of us. The things that we have done, the things that we have tolerated, the things that we have allowed to take place, sins of commission, things that we have done and sins of omission, things that we failed to do that we should have done, all of that was heaped upon Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that in that one single act, 2,000 years ago, the sin of the entire human race, past, present, and future, was landed firmly on the shoulders of Jesus. But you see, if that was the end of it, that would be fairly depressing. (laughs) That would not be good news. That would be bad news. But it didn't end there. Because Jesus, the Son, on the third day was physically raised by God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is alive today. And that is good news. And it's good news for this reason. The things that we have done, the shame that is in our lives can be eradicated in a heartbeat 
because there is so much power flowing out from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 2,000 years after it took place, Jesus is still walking the earth today by the power of his Spirit. 2,000 years on, still he lives, still he loves, still he saves, still he forgives, still he rebuilds. Amazing. Peter puts it like this. Jesus Christ suffered and died once and for all. The spotless in place of the unclean to bring us back to God. He was put to death in the body and, made, and then made alive by the Spirit. It's not complicated, is it? It's not complicated. Some people think, oh, I don't really understand it. Now, there's loads of things that we don't understand. That's why Alpha is such a great journey. But please don't come on it thinking you're going to expect all the, all the answer questions that you've got answered, because I've got my own. And I'm running it. You will never know the answers to all the questions that you can come up with. Why? Because it's a mystery. It is a faith journey. It doesn't mean that we've got to put our brain in the fridge in order to become a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a sense that we have to step over the line into a new place. And when we do that, the light comes on. It doesn't mean that somehow every question in our brain or any question that we can create or invent is immediately answered. That's not what happens. But there is a light that comes on. There is a darkness that is illuminated when we say yes to God because of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, freedom has little to do with being released from a physical restraint. I mean, Rob was not really fastened in that. In fact, he, he has got quite a big head, but that hole is quite big. He could have just walked straight out of there. It's a visual aid. And even if I chained him up in there, which I maybe should have done, if I'd have set him free, that's not why he would have been free. He's free because Jesus has set him free. And it's the same for each one of us. Freedom is not about being released from physical restraints. Freedom is having a debt cancelled by Jesus. A debt that belonged to us laid upon him. But unless we receive it, we don't get the benefit of it. You're not free today because Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. You're free today because you accept personally that Jesus died 2,000 years ago for you. That's what sets you free. Two thousand years ago, two thousand years before your most shameful act or the worst thing that you've ever done, Jesus Christ died in your place. That is the wonder wonder of this message that we call the gospel. That we get to live in freedom because of what Jesus did for us. We don't worship a dead God or follow a dead religious set of rules. We have been transformed by the living Christ. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. I know I'm not. Far from it. But it does mean there's hope. 
it does mean that there is hope in this life and beyond the grave into eternity. I wonder if we could all stand to our feet for a minute. My, my sense today is that there are a number of people here that need to just step over the line. Not coming to that place of saying, yeah, sorted it, got it all worked out. Well, help me if you're there. Because there's mysteries in this that are very hard to understand. But it's not the bits of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. It's the bits I do understand. So I'm going to pray in a moment. And um, if you're thinking, actually, yeah, I, I actually want to take that step today, maybe for the first time. Maybe you've just come here today as a guest. And, um, you know, we're, we're really thrilled you're here. And uh, I really want you to come on the Alpha course. But you don't need to wait for, the, for an Alpha course in order to connect with God. It's not, a, it's not a magical seven-week fix, okay? It's a journey of exploration, but you can meet with God right now. And uh, I'm going to invite you to do that in a second. And the way I'm going to invite you to do that is that while everyone's standing, I'm just going to invite you to come and stand. There's a, some panels here. It's not a trap door, don't worry. Uh, it's a baptismal pool underneath, and that's maybe the next step for you. Um, but I want you to come and stand here um, in a moment. If you're thinking, yeah, Steve, that's for me. Actually, I want to pray. Um, so that's in a minute, but I'm going to pray in a, before I do that. But before I even do that, I want to read one more verse from the Bible. And this is what it says. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we're committing our lives to, to the person of Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, I want you to live in me. I want you to clean up my slate. I want you you to give me a fresh start. And if you want that today, and if you need that, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. A line at a time on the inside. And then we're going to sing a song, and I'm going to, but I'm going to ask you to come and stand at the front just after you've done that. If you pray, I'm going to ask you to come and stand with me. Why? Because we haven't got to take a walk of shame, but you've got to take a walk of faith. Okay, here's the prayer. If you want to pray this for the first time, or maybe you just know, I need to get right with God today. There's some area of shame that I just want to... Uh, say sorry to God and I want to receive the forgiveness of Jesus I'm going to ask you to come as well my father in heaven pray this prayer on the inside with me my father in heaven thank you that you sent your son Jesus to this world to walk the walk of shame on my behalf So that I could be set free, clean on the inside, and given fresh hope to live as a child of my Father in heaven. 
I ask you to come into my life today to fill me with your power to live a transformed life. Free from every chain. I choose to be a follower of Jesus today.